hard work, gun-toting cats atop flame-nostriled unicorns, this is Carbon 4 Brewing in Madison, Wisconsin. Come along and hang out with the guys behind the Fantasy Factory curtain. Be exposed to those backroom, unfiltered meetings where the beer geekery is on point and beer trends are dissected. Welcome to the Carbon 4 Podcast, an unhinged brewery tour. We're back this week with Zach is back joining us. So we've got Ryan, Joe, and Zach from Carbon 4 here in Madison. And then also with us today, we've got Jeff Olson joining us. Um, so Jeff, tell our listeners who you are and, and what you're doing here with us today. Yeah, well, I've been, uh, I've been with Carbon 4 for like 10 years now, which blows my mind. Um, basically... Yeah, I was a home brewer who... Really Blows your mind, but not your bank account. Shit, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. That's called crapping on myself. <laughs> um, but, I mean, yeah, it's been it's been an awesome 10 years, honestly. And, uh, yeah, super excited to be here on the podcast. Um, yeah, so thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for, for joining us, Jeff. You're, uh, um, we'll go through your origin story stuff, too, because... One of the most excellent parts of you being here today, too, is that you're also the owner, founder, distiller over at a Wilden Distilling here. Uh, your shop's over in Sun Prairie, and we'll have you talk more about that. Um, but first, you're actually uh, our first, well, I'm going to say employee, first production employee. Yeah, first production hire. Yeah. Production hire, yeah. yeah. I was all all by my lonesome in the back, and, uh, and you started with us first and uh, been my stalwart uh friend and and uh and fellow teammate back there for many years been through a lot of stuff you've seen me at my lowest lows and <laughs> which would probably be bottling day stuff you know things break and i've only really lost my cool once or twice and to the point of embarrassment and definitely the bottling bottling silk scorpion was one that was the first one for sure um or no it was idiot farm but anyway why don't you tell us how you and i first met and how you joined the team or your background like go through your from like yeah as far back as you want i'd probably say at least like um you know tell us about how you got into like brewing spirits like all the all the cool stuff you got a lot of really really cool we can, stories. We can always cut stuff out but john's voiceovers are terrible if he's going to try to be you <laughs> <laughs> doesn't do good impressions not not my not my strong suit <laughs> all right. well i'll say you know Going back a little bit before I got into brewing, um, I played in an Irish band, you know, through high school, through college, um, still play occasionally. Um, Rising Gale. Yeah. And actually, next year will be our 20th anniversary from our first ever album release. Again, blowing minds. But um, anyway, when you're in an Irish band, playing at Irish pubs, you get served. Or people love to buy you drinks, right? And so I, I think I sort of skipped over drinking the, uh, the light loggers if you will you know like guinness was was my drink of choice for a long time so you know th i think that sparked an interest in beer i've always been uh really interested in history as well and uh like i think it was 2009 or 10 there was a show on the discovery channel called brewmasters that followed dogfish head mm -hmm. and like one of the one of the episodes he was going down to peru to learn about chicha and then going to egypt and and harvesting yeast off dates to to ferment an Egyptian inspired, you know, ancient Egyptian inspired beer. So anyway, I that really um, I think awoke something in me, and so I, I started homebrewing the same year I started grad school. I um, I went to school for 
or to my grad school for prosthetics and orthotics in Michigan. But yeah, I think it was like around Thanksgiving that year, uh, I got my first homebrew kit. And, and I think ever since then, it's been a pretty, um, I, I guess not obvious, but, but I knew at some point I wanted to try professionally. So then, you know, made it through grad school, made it through my, uh, my first residency, moved back to Madison from Michigan for that. And uh, my wife and I were getting married in 2013. And, you know, I was pretty serious about homebrewing back then. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to make all the beer for our wedding. And it ended up being, I did four different recipes, four batches of each, which ended up in around the 750 bottles. I bottled it all and bottled wow. it all. Wow. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and, you know, I really enjoyed trying to get, like, that consistency between batches, um, and, and yeah, actually one of the beers, so, you know, Carbon 4 opened, uh, or I think I was here in January of uh, 2013 and tried Night Call, and, and that was super inspirational. So actually one of the beers that I brewed for my wedding was a smoked porter. I called it Till Death Do Us Porter, um, mm. but it was my, you know, back then I, I, you know, yeah, I was a big fan of Carbon 4 before I started working here. And uh, uh, so anyway... That experience of like trying to to match all these batches and, and everything because it took a lot of time. Uh, I was like, well, I think this is only reinforcing my interest in like, yeah, I I, I want to try this professionally. And so there were you know a handful of breweries that that I enjoyed um, in town. Sort of reached out to a few. Page at House of Brews uh, let me come in for for a day, uh, which was interesting. But um, I mean, super appreciative that he gave me that opportunity. But. I was most persistent about this place and called, dropped off resumes. Um, I think I talked to Alex a few times on the phone and I was like, oh yeah, uh, he'll get back to you. And then somehow I got your email address. I forget from who, maybe my friend Greg, who worked for the milk marketing board back at the time, somehow he had your card. And then I just emailed you directly. And I remember uh, October had just been dropped and met you out on the patio early October. I'd gotten married like two weeks before. And, uh, yeah, sort of had a, I had planned to go back to machine for a prosthetics residency that fell through. So I was going to have to wait anyway before I could reapply to residencies. And, uh, it's like, well, now's a good time to try this, uh, brewing thing and, uh, spent a lot of time. Those, you know, we met, talked about our post-grad journeys cause you had sports medicine background. I had the prosthetics orthotics, you know, medical back background. And, uh, yeah, it was a really fun conversation. And you're like, well, we've got this old bottling line that needs to get cleaned and someone needs to learn how to run it. Um, and so, yeah, I remember I brought my cordless drill and you had some stainless steel brushes and just spent a lot of days in batteries. <laughs> I was going to say, that's yeah. my oldest memory of Jeff is on the, on the tunnel with the, with that, uh, the wire brush, like just polishing the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. But, but then, you know, you had me scrubbing tanks. I got to spin together the fitting, the glycol fittings for FE6 and set. No, it was four and five back then. It was the first two 40 barrel. Yeah. Um, spin yeah. together valves for the glycol. So anyway. Yeah. I remember that the, the bench, the workbench was like right there by the DPAL. Yeah. I remember that day. I was like, all right, have you ever done plumbing or any of this before? And you're like, no, no not really. I'm like, ah, it's not too hard. I'll show you some stuff. And then I remember being like, all right, I'll, I'll just come back and I'll just let you feel, fiddle with this for a little bit and I'll be back and did good work. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I, I think there's still functional valves, so I didn't screw anything st- yeah, up too bad. They're still on the tanks. And then, yeah, I remember when we had that sit down, there's a lot of things that went through my mind, but I thought such a similar journey. I thought probably 
a lot of the same problem solving skills, you know, or problem solving skill sets at least. And I thought, yeah, that'd be pretty good. So I never heard about the, I forgot about the residency part. Cause I remember you're saying like, well, we saved up some money. We had some money, you know, from like gifts from our wedding and stuff. And we thought if I don't give it a try now, like there's just not gonna be another chance. And, and basically Aaron was like, get it out of your system or let it be your system, but figure it out. Yeah. My wife has been so supportive in all these, uh, career developments. Um, she's a sweetheart. Yeah, no, very fortunate. And, and honestly, now that I'm doing like distilling and, and trying to come up with recipes and everything, her palate's way better than mine. So it's nice to have, uh, someone who's willing to try, you know, the first versions of things before they get fine tuned. But, uh, I've got that same, same thing. And it's awesome being able to have my wife tell me what's in something and then I can tell her how it got there. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I, I really was like finished that orthotics residency at the UW hospital here in Madison. I had one line, a prosthetics residency lined up in Michigan and the guy was like one practitioner, but he's very good at what he did, but he's like, I'm sorry, I have to focus on this other thing. I can't host you. So yeah, I, I would have had to wait essentially like three months before I could reapply to the residencies. So um, that was the window that, that allowed me to mm-hmm. yeah, give it a try. What what was the prosthetics thing? I mean, what was the interest there? Did you have a specific interest in, in prosthetics well, or was it just general? It was, um, well, my dad, uh, when I was in high school and stuff, he worked at a prosthetics and orthotics lab. And the fabrication and design part of that was really cool. You know, you're, you're building a new limb for someone. So the biomechanics of, of all that, like I did my undergrad in kinesiology, the study of movement. Um, and at and, UW, right here yeah, in Madison. UW Madison. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I just like making things and, and, um, yeah, if you can help people at the same time, that's great. I will say being a clinician was not my favorite thing, <laughs> you know, uh, working with, Patience and, and stuff is great, but, but, you know, people, I think don't understand it with a lot of these devices. Like you have to work with it. It's not just like a magic thing. That's going to make your life better. Uh, unless you don't do the, phys- if you don't do the physical therapy, occupational therapy, whatever to, to integrate that into your life, it's not going to do a thing for you. And, and working with doctors was frustrating and insurance and all that. So, you know, there's frustration in anything you're going to do, but at the end of the day, it's like, how much enjoyment do you get? Like what do you get out of it that, that makes the frustration bearable? And, uh, yeah, that was not my favorite thing. Right. Is it a labor love or is it just a labor? Yeah. But, but, you know, going back to grad school, like I don't regret it. I mean, I know you've talked about paying off this, uh, grad degree that you're not doing anything with, but, but I think it really teaches you how to think in some ways and problem solve. Cause, um, yeah, I don't regret that experience at all. And, and, um, yeah, like doing that, that research for grad school was, I think very um, influential down the road. Where uh, where in Michigan were you in grad school? Eastern Michigan University. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. So I lived in Saline, and then that was in Ypsilanti, right next to yep. Ann Arbor. So that's your that's your stomping grounds, right? Yeah, you? my my parents actually both went to Eastern. I went to went to school at, at University of Michigan, but yeah, right in that same area. I got married in Saline. So yeah, small world. I think we, uh, we probably missed each other by like, I don't know. I, I left Michigan in 20, what about 2005 to move out here. Yeah. So, so I was there in like 2010, 11. Okay. Did you ever hook up with the homebrew club out there? The, the Ann Arbor Brewers Guild? I did not, but, um, again, like 
being in a homebrew and getting more into craft beer at that time, I remember very clearly going to like uh, Jolly Pumpkin for the first time and having my first sour beer. Um, oh yeah, and and there was like some really good beer in Michigan for sure. Um, I mean, not to mention Fell or Bells and Founders and stuff, but um, yeah, I actually made friends with one of the bartenders at at um, uh, Jolly Pumpkin, and he helped me brew my first all grain batch, you know, in my garage in Saline. So oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I remember when we first met, I think you were clean shaven. Yeah. I and now you've had a tremendous beard ever since <laughs> working at K4. Well, I've always. Incident, uh, in, I think it was 2015 was the last time I was clean shaven when I burned my beard off in a grilling accident right around the Super Bowl. <laughs> I remember, I remember going uh, to Carbon 4 that I think it was. Who is it? Monday. Yeah. And you're like, what the? <laughs> who, who are you? No, I, I, yeah, I can't picture him without a beard anymore. He's had a fantastic beard for so long. I, it's, it's a part of me now. It's Yeah, it is as a life of its own. Well, Jeff is like, for anybody who doesn't know Jeff, hasn't been to a Wilden or, or seen him here, if you've been here over the last decade, you've probably seen him in the Brew House everywhere else. I think, Jeff, you're the most Viking person I know. <laughs> Not Minnesota Vikings, but like, I think you carry the blood purely. It's awesome. And, and you have so many awesome, cool traits and interests and things about you too like there's some of my favorite memories of the brewery period are after i after we got you cleared on the brew house and stuff and then especially when we started doing um triple brews and that was like you and me yeah right that was like uh someone had a kickoff at 4 a.m that's how we figured out how we're going to get through the day and uh there are times that come in you know whatever like six seven in the morning and you were already there, and then all of a sudden I'd be approaching the door from the silent silence of the back parking lot, and I'd start hearing bagpipes. <laughs> and, then, yeah. and I'm like, oh, what happened? <laughs> and then I come inside and I thought, oh, he's playing some cool music. Because I really love Flog and Molly and you know, Irish folk music, but also like kind of Irish punk or whatever else, Irish rock. And I was like, Oh, he's cranking some good tunes, and then I come inside and then you're playing the bagpipes. <laughs> Like practicing for a show or something. Let's just say it's hard to practice your bagpipes in a residential setting. Um, you oh, why is that? <laughs> so, no, I bring my pipes in and, and yeah, get mashed in and then, uh, you know, whatever, start refilling the hot liquor tank and then just fire up the pipes in the tasting room for a few minutes. I love it. I love it. And then after a couple years after that, too, we'd come in and there'd be like the, the like Viking war music or something mm-hmm. like that. It's like that. the Viking soundtrack from the... Um, Everybody come in, they're like, oh, no, there's ritual sacrifice again. <laughs> Ragnar Lothbrok's in the back. Yeah, good, yeah. He got blood in the kettle again. Again? <laughs> <laughs> Those are awesome carryovers. Tell us about, uh, yeah, so when we first got here, it was like, okay, this is a cool cat. And you were like, I'll just volunteer. Yeah. And I remember going to the back office and being like, hey, I have somebody they want to volunteer and I've had I had you know people reach out here and there, and I was like, no, I th- this I think this is the one that you know if we're going to do some with her, or try somebody to come back, like let's do that. And I'd spent a lot of time at that point in time just jamming by myself, trying to get things done. So you know, just very much in my own box, trying to like just rush. And so like to have to have someone to like explain, talk to, and work with was like a little bit of a change of pace. And then, and at first I was like, ah, you have it all in your head and you think, okay, I got my own checklist. And then at first it was, it was thinking like, oh crap, you know, 
not crap about having help, but like then there's the work along with having help. And then, but like very, 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 very quickly, I just saw how reliable you were and self-starting and intelligent and really only had to explain things once and you're good at problem solving. And if, and you knew when to kind of stop and hit the pause button and, and say, Hey, I think I've reached a, a, a decision point here that I want some input on. Uh, I mean, that was like the whole, like putting the fittings together on the tank. That was like the whole purpose of it was like, well, here's a new task. It's a little foreign to you. It's fairly simple, but you got to think through some stuff, you know, like what's going to happen here. And, and it was like aces on that. And I thought, well, it's about as complex as it typically gets here. Uh, but tell us. memory is like so positive because I remember just asking a million questions. <laughs> and um, so I'm glad you, you think I wasn't too annoying back then. Because, you know, nah. I, I, but, you know, it's one of those things too, like, I've always been on the side of, uh, yeah, I'd rather get guidance than screw it up. But at the same time, like, yeah, it's fun to test your own limits and, and figure it out. But yeah, I, you know, I fairly soon after you guys offered me a job and, um, yeah, cause you're like two days in and we had a discussion in the back, like, wow, we should probably just throw this guy a few bucks of like, whatever we can afford just yeah. to kind of like, yeah, if I'm, he wants I, to stick around for a month. And yeah. Then, and then, I remember doing like uh, I think it was the first time we did Yuletide Stout, Fleece Navi Dog, and you Tom was painting while you were brewing. Uh, I just remember that, and uh, what's that production company was filming it all? Like, Backflippers. Back, yeah, yeah, I thought yeah. that was so fun. We had a lot of fun that day, and um, it wasn't too long after that. I think it was a couple months later. Actually, it was Valentine's Day that next that because uh, Sam came in uh, to have lunch with you, and then you're like, "Hey, can you mash in this undercover?" don't screw it up because I don't want to be here, but the clavs mash. But, um, <laughs> but you had shown me, you know, uh, you had shown me enough. And then that was like my first like solo mash. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it was just, um, you know, people on here before have like talked about getting, getting bit with the bug or whatever. Like I had the brewing bug for sure. I mean, I still do, but yeah, it, it, yeah. it only, all these experiences only uh, strengthened my desire to you know, continue brewing professionally. Awesome. So that that was the end of 2013, going into 14, and then Valentine's 14. Yeah, is that what it is? Okay. Yeah, that's I'm what trying I, to yeah. remember exactly yeah. what in months. May, yeah. In May, you named me a brewer because I was brewing solo batches, and then I'm trying to remember the first time we bottled. But you were actually sick when we were supposed to brew the bottling. The batch was going to be bottled first, so I ended up doing that double solo, and that was the first time I had ever solo brewed a double day. But yeah, that batch ended up being the first actually got bottled too yeah. awesome well you, I, there's a lot of things i've given you there too because when i was in montana um it was mostly just me i'd, I'd sometimes have a part-time person especially in the summer or whatever else but there was a lot of just just being me and i would set up my day and i could depend on me to just keep working and get things done especially with a much younger body you know and good shoulders and you know whatever a good audio book i didn't mind just getting it all done a little point of pride. Uh, but I definitely had some part-time people there um, over the years. I had, a, you know, one or two people that I could really depend on here and there, but for the most part, it was spotty service, you know? And so there was a little bit of a burn there and now it was like my baby, you know, like my, it was my beer. Now I wasn't brewing somebody else's beer. I was brewing my recipes, uh, you know, inside of K4. And so like you helped me learn how to let go. Cause that's really what the, what the, what the lesson was there was like, if this is going to go somewhere, I have to more than just a little brew pub. Like I have to learn how to 
let people in, teach them, hand off, try to figure out how I'm going to check in on them or whatever else, which has only taken me 12 years to get 10% good at, you know, but you were that start and I really appreciate it was you because it wasn't, you know, somebody else that might've burned me again. Cause I would have just probably closed ranks pretty quickly in my mind and been like, forget that. But you, you were really awesome in that way, Jeff. And I really appreciate that. Oh, that I, mean, I, I, I will concur that at least I'm dependable. I maybe I definitely have made my own shared mistakes here over the years, but, uh, at least I'll show up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Showing up. Exactly. And who dude, who hasn't? It's all it's all learning experiences. You know, you've you've had some boo boos like the one time I remember you knocked in some sanitizer into the oh, fermenter. I, I, it was right after we got the centrifuge. <laughs> or yeah, it was in the bright tank and yeah. you were like freaked out and I'm like, that's okay. <laughs> I did not drain that sanitizer out of the bright tank. So halfway through I was like, this volume is too high for you know, there's a flow meter on the cent- on the centrifuge and it's like shit yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah i think we could taste it too you know like it was obvious um or i think the most painful but you caught it and you called it out yeah. and we were like ah, just we weren't even that far into it you know so it was like well it sucks but i bet you won't do that again the yeah. same way that i've made huge mistakes like dumping half batches when i was in montana and, and i always stuck with me you know uh george if you're listening out there like that that was one of the biggest life lessons i ever had was that there was one time I was trying to set up to do a filtration on a on a stout, an oatmeal stout, in the middle of our peak season when that was the most demanded beer. And I was trying to get the, the cookie out of the bottom of the fermenter so I could set up for the for the filtration pass. And uh he kind of came in and was like, get your timesheet done and blah blah blah. And it was this moment of like, fine okay i'll fucking go do it and i was just like well i'll go do it and then i went and did it and stupid me i left the bottom of the fermenter open because it was so cookie dry and packed in there that i was like jamming on it with a screwdriver for like two hours at this point and i was like this is stuck and, uh, yeah right so i went did my paperwork and it was like 10 minutes and i came back and the cookie popped and i lost half the tank and uh, I remember calling him just like pretty much in tears. Like I was choked up. I was like just about crying. I'm like, hey, I, I did this. Uh, I know it's the worst time for it to happen. Um, I'll make up for it. However, um, if you need to fire me right now, I'm totally, I can understand that and I accept it, you know, whatever else. And then there was just like, there wasn't even like maybe two beats of silence. And then he just goes, well, did you learn your lesson or something like that? He was like, well, we're just going to have to, we're just going to have to move forward, you know? And he didn't freak out, screamed and nothing, didn't curse and even frustration. He was like, that sucks. Thank you for telling me. Let's get past it. And why don't you figure out how we're going to make up for it? And that moment stuck with me forever. And that's why, as I've said, when we bring on new people, I'm like, I'm never going to, you make a big mistake. I'm not, the last thing I'm going to do is just start screaming and throwing shit, you know, because nobody needs that at that moment. As you say, I hate to bring it up because I never want to have to relieve of it. But I mean, Zach is sitting here, and and I'm thinking like the the day I felt the worst was when I I I used to you know do inventory on all the packaging, and we had Raspberry Fantasy Factory, and I had misrecorded and allowed them the misnumber to progress in the inventory, and all of a sudden we were supposed to bottle a triple of Raspberry Fantasy Factory, and we only had enough labels for you know, half that tank or something. And, uh, yeah, that was pretty, uh, pretty awful day. But you guys didn't fire me. So we're all human. 
I've I've excommunicated that memory. I have to I think about that a little bit. I, <laughs> no, it's Jeff, fun. You you know you you're on a you know, like Ryan said, you're on a long list of just dumb little mistakes that we all make. So I I have to think about it a little bit. I think I might remember that, but. I promise you, I've done worse. It's probably happened. I mean, something like that has happened with inventory probably four times this year, too. You know, we're we're all counting it. We think we have what we have, and we're we're packaging the tank before we find out we don't have something. You know, so I just realized it's just part of it. You know, it's it's part of the life. Ninety minutes ago, we were like, "Where's the grain for Lady Luck tomorrow?" Yeah, and I'm like, "I placed an order. I know I did all this. Took care of it." I've seen like the shipping confirmations and just that little bit of a hiccup of, of a thing. Like I, it, the pallets at BSG, they never pass it on to their, I ordered some hops on the same order and the hops gave their own shipping confirmation. And so my normal process, even there just totally broke down. And here we are, like someone's coming to pick grain and they're freaking out. Where's sh-? So, you know, I'm ultimately responsible for that. Like that just happens all the time and it sucks and you learn from it and move on. And like, I just promise you, whatever you've done, I've done worse. <laughs> you know? Well, and it's, it's, it's also hard. You're probably seeing it on the other side now as, as a proprietor, you know, as the one that's totally responsible for it. And these, these little games you play with yourself to double and triple and quadruple check yourself to make sure it's actually right. You know, it's hard. It It's hard to, really feel it in your soul that I need to make sure the work I'm doing is actually correct. Right. And oh, yeah. and it, disseminating that across the whole group of people, well, and even like it's just hard to do. What Ryan was saying about being able to hand off your process to someone else. Like, so, so far it's been me doing all the distilling and everything out of Wilden, but you know, part of the goal of this is to, yeah, I mean, add more production and at least add another person. It's like, um, yeah, hoping that you find the right person and, and that you can train them well so that, yeah, because it's so personal, right? If it's your, whatever it is, if it's your thing, like, yeah, trusting the process and the the, the things that you've done that, that it will continue beyond just your hands doing it. Yeah, it's, that's what I'm trying to wrap my head around right now, so. Yeah, yeah to go further down that rabbit hole now, like you've, how long have you just been like two years now three years yeah so i mean 2017 uh seriously interested in distilling got to go to scotland for a week and, and uh, i mean i paid to be there but i worked at a craft distillery for a week so pause button a second I, this is my favorite story this is like this is jeff olson in a nutshell for sure <laughs> when i talk about your whiskey to my friends and you know all the time i'm like i i know who the best american whiskey distiller is and he's just down the street and just the most killer whiskeys that I love. And I'm like, this is the guy who, when he goes on vacation, goes to Scotland to work at a distillery for a week as vacation time. Yeah. And that, that right there, that's passion. That's, that's, that's something that you just can't get out of your blood. Like you're just a victim to it almost, you oh, know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was a really cool opportunity too, because, uh, you know, most distilleries in Scotland um, in terms of production are, are just huge, you know, think about McAllen's or, um, I mean, any of the distilleries, they're just very large, but this distillery had a very similar size brew house to what carbon four uses. And, and, and I mean, they were using, we use golden promise. They were using Maris Otter, but 
you know, even down to the grain selection, like, cause one's a, they came out about the same time, but one's a winter variety and one's a spring variety. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, I went there and totally hands-on. Um, I think they appreciated that I had some production experience. So I don't know if they let everyone do what I got to do. But. How'd you even get that thing, the experience put all put together? I, I had a very talented, uh, well, a friend of mine, uh, she was a travel writer in Scotland. Um, Traveling Savage was the name of the blog. And, uh, yeah, like at least once a year, but sometimes twice a year, uh, she would go over there and just tour around Scotland and write about, you know, places she came across. And, um, yeah. So, anyway, she actually set this up. But uh, it was great because, actually, she came with on that experience. And um, we got to stay in a, in a town nearby and, and the lodgings were free because, you know, she was going to write about it or put it on her blog. So anyway, um, yeah, very, very fortunate um, that that all worked out. But anyway, yeah, they, they were doing some really cool stuff. Like they were using heritage uh, varieties of barley, like going back to like bear barley, which is like sort of pre-industrial barley. They were making whiskey out of that. They were doing, um, it was the first time I ever had Jennifer, which became my first release, but it's essentially a whiskey-based gin, um, the short description of it. So anyway, I learned a lot over there and came back from that, got you know my own certification through the IBD, uh, spent some time around Wisconsin, excuse me, Wisconsin distilleries, like uh, Wollersheim was super accommodating, state line here in town. Um, yeah, so... Just kept going from there, and and um, yeah, two years ago I just renewed my my uh, distilling license with the state. So yeah, two years ago in October um, was when Wilson finally got going. I mean, I <laughs> I tried to launch it in in well, I bought the stills in February of 2020, and uh, the stills were made in Portugal. So let's just say that I mean there were some delays. Uh, the lead times went way out <laughs> uh, when everything shut down in March. And, you know, turning my space that I'm in now was a fitness studio before I went in there. And, and so there was a, a bit of build out to turn it into a functional uh, distillery. But, yeah, we got there. <laughs> Took longer than expected, but we got there. Tell us more about your still. I think it was beautiful. Remember, you being like, can I get it shipped to your room? I'm like, of course. Yeah, we put it up in the rack. But it was really pretty. It was like handmade. Yeah. It's, Is that it's, true? It's all hand-beaten copper from Portugal. Uh, this company called Hoga. I mean, they, they supply numbers. Oh, things. it's our cousins from Portugal. Portuguese cousins. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they make a lot of stills for like the brandy industry, like French brandy, Spanish brandy. Um, so they kind of have these like classic Olympic style called like onion dome. They kind of look like those towers, you know, like minaret towers or something. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's an old school copper pot still, but in my mind it's like that type of technology is the best suited to, you know, full flavor, full body whiskey, rum, brandy, and that's what I, that's what I'm focused on. So um, yeah, I've got a six hundred liter and a one hundred liter, so between those two, uh, that process is all the liquid. So it's um it's not a fast process, but it's it's worth it, I think. So you're still putting in hours here, like you're our weekend guy right now. Yeah. Get all of our Sundays done to kind of set up the rest of the week. Um, how many days a week are you putting in over to Wilden then? Because I mean, you have your tap room open yeah, over there I'm too, the only right? Bartender, so I I run the tap room or tasting room from you know Fridays and Saturdays, and then uh, you know try and get whatever production needs to get done during the week. So yeah. 
it's pretty busy. Yeah. Well, tell us more about what you brought here today. And then I'm going to ask you, give us a crash course in distilling, uh, the shape of the, of the thing. I had the chance, uh, what was it? Almost a year and a half ago or more. I went out to, to, uh, Denver, um, and, uh, uh, with my father-in-law and brother-in-law, brothers-in-law actually. And, uh, we went down to a uh, downslope distilling puts on like a, a three day course. And, uh, so I learned a lot then and I have all the notes and I've basically forgotten it all. Um, so tell us about what you brought and then teach us more about like distilling and, and, and what we're supposed to look for. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, two years into the distilling process, my oldest whiskey is coming up on that two-year mark, you know. Um, but I really want to share, you know, whiskey is why I started this distillery. I, I really like Scottish-style single malt. And what I like about Scottish-style single malt is, uh, you know, it's single grain, malted barley, distilled at one distillery. Uh, whereas in the U.S., you know, bourbon is obviously the most popular whiskey here. Um, but there's, there's so much variation in bourbon and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but you know, minimum 51% corn, the rest of the grain can be anything else. And a lot of distilleries, you know, there are some very large distilleries that will sell their barrels, you know, across the country or whatever. And then you can take that barrel, age it, and then just put your, you don't necessarily have to have distilled it, but you can put your label on it. Right. And again, there's nothing wrong with that, but I sort of like, I guess, the purity, for lack of a better word, the provenance of like Scottish-style single malt. So that's what I want. That's what I wanted to bring, you know, to an American distillery, and and also the fact that we're working with malted barley as brewers, like it's really just an extension of that brewing process. So um, yeah, like I said, my oldest whiskey is coming up on two years. I want to give it at least three to five years in the barrel, depending on the size of the barrel. But I also wanted to give people a sort of a snapshot of where a wilderness is at in the process. So that's what I'm calling this a progress report. Um, but it's it's primarily uh, just 100% Golden Promise. There's a little bit of crystal malts uh, mixed into one of the batches. I ended up blending a couple barrels to produce this release. Um, so there are some crystal malts in there, but it's primarily Golden Promise. And um, yeah. Double distilled, you know, you essentially make an 8% ABB beer, or my process, make an 8% ABB beer, distill it once, and the strength of that, the stuff you collect, that first distillate is about 20% ABV. Uh, save all that, pump it back in the distiller, redistill it, and then by the time you get the hard cut, the usable spirit off that second distillation, I get about 30 gallons at 70% ABV. And, and that 30%, or that 30 gallons, you know, I can put into a barrel to age, or I can... Uh, put it into a, my smaller still, add botanicals and redistill it, and that's how I get the flavors infused for like the Jennifer, like that that whiskey gin hybrid. So, uh, so this is the progress report then. Yeah, so this is so cask strength. It's aged in ex bourbon barrels. Again, that's a very Scottish thing. Um, bourbon barrels, or if you're calling it a straight bourbon, it has to be at least two years in a new charred oak barrel. And so, a lot of distilleries, if that's their focus, um, they have no further use for that barrel after they take out the bourbon. So actually, a lot of bourbon barrels get shipped either, I mean, typically they're they're broken apart into staves and then sent over there on pallets. And then in Scotland, they'll rebuild those barrels to be slightly larger, which blows my mind. Like, they'll go from like 200 liter up to 250 liter, um, they call them hogsheads. But anyway, I like that profile too of, of um, you know, the, the bourbon sort of takes out the most aggressive wood flavor. And there's still plenty of that oak barrel cast character to get imparted into your whiskey it's just i think 
you know, you can leave it in there longer and still have the spirit shine through. It's just not all tannins and vanilla. Mm-hmm. Uh, which again, there's nothing wrong with that, but my personal preference, like, yeah, well, it's like I, my I, favorite I, bourbons have that like super strong vanilla crack to them. Yeah. And, and I think you get a little bit more nuance out of, out of single malt that's aged in the next bourbon barrel. Describe, tell me what you get out of this here as I'm going to stick my nose into it. Yeah. So, so when I first moved back, Zach, as a Christmas present, we got, went to a scotch tasting at the Madison club. Mm-hmm. I remember the Scottish guy was like, Hello. How are you? Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. right. Fine, thank you. He also yeah. talked about spooning in water um, more than I would have expected. I forget what the ratio was, but but opening it up with water. If only we had a distiller to ask. <laughs> so, you know, I, I definitely, I bottled this at cast strength. So uh, put it in the barrel at like 120 proof, came out of the barrel at 124. So, you know, in the Midwest here, we're relatively a drier climate. And you're always going to get evaporation. People call it the uh, the angel share. But that evaporation is not an equal mix of water and, and ethanol. When you're, when you're in a drier climate, you're preferentially going to lose more water than ethanol. So the strength goes up over time. Whereas in Scotland, being very coastal, typically, uh, their angel share is going to be a higher percent um, uh, spirit. So their, their strength actually goes down over time in the barrel. But anyway, that's why it ended up at about 60, 62% ABV. Adding water definitely opens up the, makes the, the aromas more volatile because, you know, there's oils and everything in here that have either survived the distilling process or, or come out of the barrel. And so you break that surface tension with a little water and all of a sudden you can experience that whiskey in a different way. And that's one of the reasons why I decided to bottle it at cast strength because then people can decide how much water they want to add. You know, otherwise it's me adding water essentially in the bottle and that yeah i'm gonna add some now <laughs> but so being so young a lot of the a lot of the complexity in the whiskey comes through oxidation of whatever compounds are there produced during fermentation mm-hmm. essentially and so um so that that oxidative process typically takes like four years before you can really perceive those changes like acids get converted into esters and you start to get those fruitier notes in, in your whiskey. But at this point, you know, for me, it's all like barrel character and malt. Um, I was saying before we started recording, like about mid palate in here, uh, there's just like this this maltiness that reminds me of being in the milling room. Yeah. You know, just like that, just that barley flavor. Um, but these these barrels, I mean, definitely imparted. I get a lot of butterscotch and, and vanilla and then some honey too. That water really opened it up. <laughs> it just went straight up in my palate, just trying to drink it. Dude, malt and oak are like my two favorite characteristics too. I think it's when I when I love bourbon, I love it on ice because I just I don't know why I like to freeze out the alcohol burn a little bit so I can get a bit more of the 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 oak characteristic. I love the oak characteristic; it's my favorite part. That caramel, caramel's like my that's my caramel corn. It's usually like. My kids or my wife have to take the bag away because I'll eat it until my until my tongue is sugar cut and until I hate myself and then have gut rot for like two days straight. So like the caramel and the oak and the vanilla, that's that's my favorite part. This is extraordinary, Jeff. Oh, thank you. I mean, this it, is fantastic. Yeah, it's very young, so I I'm not saying it's like the greatest whiskey in the world, but I'm very happy with where it's at, and especially like these are some of the first barrels I filled. I, I think I you know I'm I'm evolving my process as we go too, but. Uh, yeah. What's the biggest lesson for your process that you've kind of picked up then, like the biggest change, or is it just a series of small changes? I mean, series of small changes, like how you use the still. Have you had one moment that was like, 
why the hell am I doing this? Never doing it again. Or why aren't I doing that? Now that's going to be every day. Yeah. Good, good question. So, I mean, not in that, in that vein, I mean, my first batches of rum that I produced was pretty much all blackstrap molasses and I'm never going to do that again because blackstrap <laughs> is so horrible to work with. I love the flavor of it, but there are ways, what I like about it in, in a spirit is, I mean, there's so much flavor built into blackstrap molasses, but there are ways to get that, um, without, you know, uh, drizzling totally like tar without blackstrap, blackstrap molasses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Is that because of just trying to get it pumped in the kettle and like just just the just the oh, yeah. physical I mean, working with it, yeah. or like once it's all mixed I, I up, it's like pine tar to like work with blackstrap to make it. And there are special pumps and everything you can get, but I mean, at least the first time I did it, I had this fifty-five gallon drum of blackstrap that I had to get into the kettle that was you know had water because you have to uh, actually make it something that the, the yeast can ferment, um, but. But basically, I was like scooping out the black strap until I got the, the level in the barrel down low enough that I could then start mixing in hot water to try and, you know, uh, just make it viscous enough to pump. Because on its own, you can't pump black strap molasses. So, well, I'm sure there are people listening who are like, well, actually, you can. But uh, the equipment that I had at the time, I, I could not pump, pump it out of the drum. So, um, yeah. I, I definitely, I mean, Whiskey is the, the focus, so yeah, I, I definitely enjoy just doing those all all malt mashes as opposed to, uh, yeah. What about something that you thought of that you said, I'm going to add that every day to my process? Well, I mean, I, th- I think one thing that I realized as I went on is because I'm learning as I go, too. I've never worked in a, in a professional distillery you know, I, like I said, I've got those experiences, but but once you have to do it yourself, starting to think about the things that you want to reproduce or or avoid, I, I've I've gotten much better at record keeping over the time, which <laughs> is not like a sexy answer, but but if you want to if you want to like seriously hone in your process, you need to know what you did before. So um, I mean, it sounds obvious, I'm sure to a lot of people, but when you're when you're busy or whatever, it's sometimes easy to gloss over some of the, some of the nuances. And, and so I think that's one thing I've added to my, my process every day is just like meticulous notes. That's good. It's good lesson. Zach's nipples just got hard. shirt. <laughs> well, I mean, record keeping wasn't your favorite thing here at Carpet Portals. <laughs> no, that's, that's fair. Yeah, it's not natural, right? It's not natural for anyone. Well, for most people, it, that's a tough, learned skill and trait. Or how how important it is is, is just takes experience to really get in, get into your bones. Probably, uh, I mean, very good at notes and, and recipe and formulas, and and yeah, I, I don't like record keeping either. I'm just really forgetful. <laughs> I was yeah, actually going to say pretend. that thing. I was like, yeah. I bet you Joe's going to say, I'm I hate it. I just won't remember. So I have to. It's necessity. That, that's always, that was always but one that of my it. things is I treat myself like I'm a complete idiot. So I want to try to remember to whatever it is, process or take notes. Cause why, 
why depend on like just your memory and whatever mood you're in or i treat myself like a complete idiot because i'm a complete idiot <laughs> yeah well there's so that. then i don't be as, as meticulous <laughs> sometimes because i i'm too stupid <laughs> to hate myself it, i there's a there's a quote I just heard from somebody that stuck with me, and I'm going to screw it up, but the paraphrase is, is to do um, common things uncommonly well, you know, is, is kind of the trick. It, that there's, there's not um, – I think often we're, especially in craft beverages or craft anything, artisanal anything, we – we just kind of do this hand waving thing, you know, and it's it's local or it's craft or it's artisanal, and we we overlook doing that that craft uncommonly well, which is what the consumer is actually looking for you to do. They're they're ex- mm-hmm. assuming, expecting that you're giving them something that you paid extra attention to, and and not just wasted attention, like really focused, process driven, hard driven attention. It's it, it it's um. You can pay more attention without adding more care. That's right. Yeah, without or or just because you or put more effort just because in. you yeah effort and so the Barry Alvarez quote is that don't confuse effort with results. You know it it really does take these procedures and things to turn your passion into results and not just something that you made. You know, and I I think we we live through that every single day. I mean, the things that we still do to improve are amazing to me. I I wonder. It, it's it's wild to think, I think, how much better the beer is, at least from our perspective internally, than it was 10 years ago. And somehow we still sold a bunch of it. I mean, but for the grace of God, yeah. we, we sold any of it at all. I'm so I'm always way more excited and pumped for little tiny wins, little tiny gadgets, little tiny improvements that make a material difference, that, that just remove frustration or stupid crap. More than like installing a brand new piece of equipment, because, well... When we first would get equipment, I was just excited because it was like, oh my God, new equipment and this is such thing. And now, like, you know, after doing this all for 16 years plus, when I get the new piece of equipment, all I can actually, I start to think about like, oh crap, there's all these little things that have to be just right to make sure this thing was actually worth any of it. And and that's just to make the machine work. And then we got to run it and really learn how to run it, you know? And so- all the little things, even on the packaging line, you know, you get a machine there and then week to week, there's like, Hey, I figured this little tiny thing out. And those small improvements I think are way more exciting than anything because you come in the next day and Hey, how did that go? And you're like, dude, life just got so much easier. And that's the best feeling, you know, for the team. And then it's like, okay, well, we'll find the next thing. Like the SOP for the centrifuge. I mean, what did we spend two or three years totally changing how we would process a tank and really dial in like the real benefit of the centrifuge and how to really tighten up the beer and make it super consistent only to change it completely, you know, yeah. with, with Murph and Joe and guys coming here saying, Hey, what yeah. if we did it this way? You know, and it, it's, it's, I agree. It's so much more fun to see those process like human driven improvements than just a piece of equipment. Even in the last like couple of weeks, the packaging team figured out, well, they, they talked to Will glass and they were like, Hey, how do you get the, because there's, there's 12 heads on our canner. And so when you're just trying to get the machine, like the batch, the the run moving, you know, there's a lot of stainless, there's a lot of hoses and a lot of things that have to chill down before the product is stable, stably filling. And when you have six heads on a filling machine, that's not as bad because it's six cans at a time. 
right? But when you have 12 heads, you're wasting, you know, two cycles later and a whole case is gone. And so that becomes really frustrating. Um, So they called Will and he was like, oh, sometimes I just, I'll rip off a keg or two off the manifold. You know, I'll run some beer in one time, roll gently, and then I'll keg off some beer so it chills the manifold. I can capture that beer, saleable beer. And now everything's chilled and then like I immediately run. So they started doing that. And then they figured out, wait a second, what if I just fill the product tank, the hold tank, the small hold tank with with my sanitizer? Like before I run my sanitizing cycle, I'll bring the sani in, turn the glycol loop on, and they have thermometers on it, and they'll wait until it gets nice and cold. Then they run their sanitizing cycle with like really cold sanitizer, and then they can like flip the product right away. And, and the multiplier just went way up. Yeah, just like, and they don't have to mess around. They did kegging for like two weeks and it was helping. And they were like, oh, they're excited. Their multipliers went up. They're doing a way better job and they're excited about it. And just watching them because it was great. And then they figured it out. They took it a step further and a step further and a step further. And then by the time I come in and I see them and they're just smiles on their faces, you know, like I did it, you know, like, come ask me, come ask me, please come ask me. And I, that's, I love that. And their timing on that is great because the marketplace right now, people won't even buy one keg. So like to have to fill that kind of problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Not every batch has kegs. I mean, even, you know, it, it doesn't work for uh, a lot of the NAs we make. It's, we're not kegging it off. So we had to have a solution that was universal. Mm Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening to the Carbon 4 Podcast, an unhinged brewery tour. Visit the taproom here in Madison, Wisconsin. Be sure to mention the K4 Podcast to get a BOGO beer deal or visit Carbon4.com or WiscoPopSoda.com. Enter the promo code UNHINGED to receive 10% off your purchase and follow Carbon 4 on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Send in your questions, comments for the team. Cheers, guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.